Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. In this episode, I get to learn about the story of the golf ball from one of the leading experts in the field, Kevin McGimsey, author of numerous books on golf ball collecting and the chief appraiser for golf at the famed Bonhams Auction House. There is a point early in the conversation where we refer to a collector named Dick. This is Dick Esty. His full name comes up later in the conversation. Dick had a marvelous and world-class golf collection and everything one can imagine within it. Golf balls, artwork, antique clubs, club makers, tools, etc. Several of us got to visit with him in his Portland, Oregon home a number of years ago, just one year before he passed. I wrote up that visit replete with numerous photographs of the collection on the Northwest Hickory Players website. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. I want to thank Kevin for his gracious time and passion for the game and urge you to stay tuned until the end when he shares the story of caddying in the 1986 Masters and being grouped with, you guessed it, Jack Nicholas in the practice round. 1986 was a good year for Jack, as we all know. The story is very entertaining. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kevin, I'd like to begin a little bit by learning about you and your background and what led you into publishing your books. Well, I'm Canadian by birth, Mm -hmm. but brought up in Northern Ireland. I left Canada when I was about nine months old and uh, quite a good pedigree of uh, golf in the family. Mm -hmm. My father was a two handicapper and he was a golf, well, he was a golf rep for Wilson staff. Oh, yes. Mm hmm. And my younger brother became the amateur champion and a Walker Cup player and Walker Cup captain, and he worked for Titleist. Oh. So going back to my father, the, the garage was always filled with uh, golfing samples. Mm-hmm. And I can still remember bright red colored uh, hole highs and Wilson staff golf balls. And, um, and there must have been something just in the back of my mind all the time that maybe golf balls was a thing for me to collect mm-hmm. in sort of as a golf heritage thing. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what for probably let, that's what sort of kicked it off. Now I know you got to be a fairly accomplished player as well. No, no, the best I was ever was eight. eight okay, eight. 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 Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. about the same as me. Right at my best. And where was this in Ireland? Little seaside town called Bangor, which mm-hmm. is about fourteen miles east of Belfast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a parkland golf course. Mm-hmm. And our family home was situated opposite the uh, the first tee. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you were born in the 1950s? 52. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. And uh, so how many books have you published to this date? I know some of them were before you got into golf, weren't they? Yes, I've like two uh, books on uh, antique toys. And I've done two or three books on matchbox toys, which mm-hmm. was quite a popular collectible in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then recent times, I've probably done four or five golf books, of which two were general golf memorabilia, Mm -hmm. and one was the big book, The Story of the Golf Ball. Right. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. I know you used to run the Chester Doll and Toy Museum before you devoted your focus to golf. How has that experience impacted the world that you live in today? Toys was a hobby as, 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 as a boy. And I went into business with a, my best uh, school friend, who was obviously um, from Northern Ireland, living in England. And we just had a great opportunity to curate and buy and display and research um, on antique toys mm-hmm. and thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was one reason why I had to get into golf, because I'm obviously a, an innate collector and I couldn't collect toys because every toy we bought, we had to sell. Mm-hmm if we didn't put it into the museum. So I had to find something else to to fix this uh, collecting bug. And that's why I turned to golf and then to golf balls. And that museum continues today? No, um, my partner, Stuart, he got um, uh, a really good offer in, a, mm. in the private sector, 
which sort of forced her hand, and we decided then just to call it a, call it call it a day. Mm-hmm. But at that time, then that opened up an opportunity for me to join Bonhams, the auction house. Yes, they took me on as their their golf expert. Yes, and life continued. Good. I definitely want to talk about that. You know, you remind me of something. I've I've had the pleasure of seeing some private collections in the golf community, and I have some more on my schedule. And when I first started doing this, I was dismayed a little bit by all of this precious material sitting often in people's private homes. But then I realized after I thought about it a little bit, as obviously we're only stewards of these objects, we don't technically own anything and they'll hopefully pass from this generation to the next generation. Mm. I guess that's what happened with your museum collection. Yes, it did. It went to auction and we both agreed to keep a couple of things back as, as mementos. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, they went to auction and um, off, off they went. That was it. Right. Yeah. Um, so eventually they become part of somebody else's collection and hopefully yes. for the next 800 years, this continues. Let's hope so. Absolutely right. <laughs> uh, now, in terms of your golf books, are there main markets for your books? Well, the story of the golf ball book, that was the big one in 2003. And I thought that that was the end of it. And sometimes I just I, I closed a chapter on it. I wasn't really going to look at it again. And I was out in Los Angeles about four or five years ago, and I was called into the the country club to have a look at their golf ball collection. And Mm -hmm. this really sparked something off again with me. I just couldn't believe it, that I was seeing golf balls that I hadn't seen before. And and they sort of asked, well, could you catalogue? And I thought, well, anybody could just go to the book and catalogue from the book. But then I looked at the book again, and there were so many inaccuracies and ambiguities Mm -hmm. and errors and i thought the gosh this is just terrible and but again it, it sparked this 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 desire to sort of research and try and improve and that's what then came about in the 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 first two folios in the golf ball directory where i'm putting right things that were wrong but because now i've got the internet and i didn't have that 20 years ago mm-hmm. the research mm-hmm. is is so much um wider now, your trip to the L.A. Country Club, was that for insurance valuation for their benefit? It was only because I was on pure luck. I was on holiday in California uh-huh. and I got the phone call and I was I went up. Yes, yeah, so they wanted to basically ascertain what they had. And you mentioned earlier on in one of your emails about the um, the Park Royal Bowl. Yes. They, they suddenly pulled one of these out of a cardboard box and the... Uh, the curator asked me what, it, what what I thought of it, and I told him it was a pretty lovely looking golf ball. And again, I, I this is all this is all part of the fun, isn't it? Seeing something that you haven't seen for a long, long time, or seeing some of a ball in that lovely condition. Is the Park Royal the hexagonal ball I sent you a picture? That's right. Of? Oh, yes. okay. I didn't even know the name of it. It's um, it's actually I looked it up. It's not well looked up. It's got Royal on it. Oh, okay. I've got. I, let me bring that picture up on yeah. screen just for a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, here it is. So that's a Park Royal ball. There it is there. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, this is part of Dick's uh, collection. Yes. Did you know Dick? Yes, I did. Yeah. We, uh, he came to my house for dinner and I stayed at his place for a couple oh, of good. nights. <laughs> yeah, we, I was I was grateful to know him before he passed. Yes. Uh, I took this. I took this photograph. Uh, You know, he showed us around his whole collection, but it wasn't until I got home that I realized that that golf ball isn't even round. No, no, it's not. But basically, it's uh, as I've done in my book here. It's uh, it was patented uh, in eighteen ninety six, bit number one one seven eight one, and the idea was that um, he made these flattened panels Uh in the shape of hexagons so that the ball would be slowed down when it was on fast greens. Oh, <laughs> I can see the word royal on this now that you mentioned it. There, yeah, there it is, yes. But um, I would say it was a complete, utter disaster. Yes, I can imagine. I, I think he was maybe just making a ball just to sort of show off a little bit. Um, probably didn't believe that it was going to do anything on fast greens. And I've probably seen maybe four or five in my time, so maybe... There's maybe no no more than ten uh, extant. And um, this is Willie Park Jr. Is it? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's incredible. Wow, thank yeah, you. Yeah. I'll post that picture in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, do you want to know what it's worth? Sure. Yeah. 
about fifteen thousand. Wow, <laughs> which is about twenty thousand. No, but about eighteen eighteen thousand dollars. Oh, that's pounds. I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's easy enough just to you know go up. Yeah, and, as, and as a rough guide. It's obviously gutta percha. Gutta percha, solid. Yeah, solid. Yeah. Yes. Just a few Indeed. years before the Haskell. Yes. Very interesting. You won the Murdoch Medal from the British Golf Collectors Society in 2004 for the story of the golf ball. Uh, right. Can you take us back to that day when you received the honor? What, what was that like? It came out of the blue. One of the uh, committee members rang me up to, to tell me that I was going to receive the medal. Uh, could I be at a certain place at a certain time at one of the meetings to, to do mm -hmm. so? And that's the medal there. Beautiful. It looks like a Kirkwood medal. It is, yeah. Kirkwood did it. Oh, yes. Beautiful. Yeah, yes, it's good. So it says, um, yeah, Murder Medal, conspicuous contribution to the literature of golf. Yeah, so I was just over the moon with it and um, really, really pleased. What, so, what, on, what, what on earth can we say about David Kirkwood? David Kirkwood is a real character. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love the guy, you know. I used to be scared stiff of him in the early days. <laughs> Uh, you walk into a room with that big red face of his, and uh -huh. you think, what, what have I said, Rock? But he's such a lovely guy. Yeah, you know? he's got so much energy. Yeah, it, it makes me laugh just thinking about him. I, yeah. I sat across the table at dinner with him last October over in Scotland, and it was the first time I got a chance to meet him. And it was though I knew him my whole life. Yes, yes such exactly. a funny guy. <laughs> and he's a, he's, a, he's a real canny Scotsman, obviously, because. We went to a, a a little trade show in November. I uh, I bought a couple of things from his lovely wife, and David wasn't there. And then I brought a couple of books down that David had pre-ordered, mm -hmm. and there was ten pounds difference in, <laughs> in 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 you know. So I said, oh, "Well, let's just call it quits, shall we?" Right. And he didn't like it, but uh -huh. he had to accept it. So he, he walked away ten pounds down on the deal. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's great. Now he's, okay. he's, uh, in essence, managing Archie Baird's collection. You yes, must know that yes, collection. Yes. Yes. I yeah. Do, yeah. It's Absolutely good of him right. to do that. I hope that yes. has a life beyond David's time. I, I think it will. I think good. it will. And, um, whereas David helped me on folio one and I described him as a, as a, as a member of, of, of Gullen. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second time he helped me and I described him as, uh, David Kirkwood, Heritage Golf Museum, Gullen, Scotland. Yes, yeah. And I thought great. that was a bit, that's a bit more appropriate. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. If we leave the Dutch game aside for a minute, is it your belief that the first Scottish golf balls were made out of wood? Yes, just about. It's so uh -huh. far, it's so long, 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 long gone that, you know, and they talked about the size of cannonballs and they sort of this. Yes, they probably were. They probably were. Oh, I, I have no opinion about it. I really know nothing mm. about it. I just thought I'd ask you. Yeah. No, I, th I think they probably were. And I think the um, the, the, the feather ball, the, the leather ball with the, mm -hmm. the feathers inside probably did come in round about sort of, um, you know, the 1600s or mm -hmm. the late 1500s. Mm -hmm. And very perishable because none, 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 there, there's none, there's no survivors today. Yeah. Both of those are organic materials. Mm -hmm. Both both samples. Um, yes. Is it possible, Kevin, to distill the story of the golf ball in an elevator speech for somebody that isn't a golfer? What would you tell somebody? There's three important aspects to, to, to golf. Mm -hmm. There's the player, there's the club, and there's the ball. Well, we don't have to talk about the player because you know, they come and go. The club has developed over the years. And one reason why the, the golf club, I think, is so much more collectible than the golf ball is because the golf club actually can be used by hickory players. Mm -hmm. So it's, re it's the club has actually reinvented itself and has extended its appeal in its life. The golf ball itself is it's perishable. You lose it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't play with it again. And you're certainly not going to play with a golf ball that's 15, 50, worth $15,000. So that's the importance of it. So there's, it's, 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 it's up there with the player and the club. And, and over the years, it's changed from feather-filled leather globe to a hard kind of rubber to then to another kind of rubber up to the very present day when mm -hmm. it looks more or less like it did 100 years ago, mm -hmm. but technically it's, it's a lot different. Yeah. 
probably this obviously is maybe trite, but um, the lawnmower and the golf ball are probably the two things that have built the game more than anything. Have you ever hit a wood golf ball? Never hit a wooden golf ball. Okay. No. I don't know if anybody really does that, but I've never done it myself. I was curious. I, about I, I think the damage to the uh, to the to the to the to the long nose clubs or the scared necks clubs would just be horrendous. Yeah, yeah, it just wouldn't be worth doing. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned Bonhams. Can you tell us what that experience was like? I I don't know if you still do it, but I know you were involved here in the U.S. as well as in the U.K. Yes. Well, luckily enough, uh, Bonhams took over from um, uh, Phillips. They, uh, mm -hmm. It was a buyout. So Bonhams became quite a big organization on the stage, probably probably still the same today, you know, behind Sotheby's and Christie's, but still pretty, pretty big. And by luck for me, Bonhams was um, situated in Chester. Mm. In, oh. that's, that's where they ran the golf from, because way back, a guy called Bob Garland, you may know, mm -mm. Bob Garland was Mr. Golf. Um, he sort of set up the, um, the golf auctions uh, under Phillips, again, from the Chester office. So when Bonhams took over, he then retired, somebody else took over. So when that retirement came about, Bonhams uh, had a short list of people. And I was just so lucky because I lived 10 miles from, right. from, the, from the office. And I was asked in, and my knowledge at the time was pretty good on golf balls, not bad on, on golf clubs, but other things uh, I was quickly learning and I learned and learned and learned mm -hmm. and I stayed there for nearly 20 years. Wow. Yeah. What goes into putting estimates together for an item? Uh, gut feeling, research, um, and, and, uh, and yeah, maybe just those two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, and also, yeah. And you're also led by the, uh, by the, by the, the feelings of the owner. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's actually quite an important aspect. Yeah, if they think the uh, it's worth a you know a thousand pounds, and you know it's only worth a hundred pounds, then you have to say, well, we can maybe compromise a little bit, but you know that's that's going to affect the estimate, and it's not going to sell if you're going too yeah. unrealistic an offer. Uh, did you have some pretty interesting experiences with online or telephone bidders that you could tell us about? Bonham's had some really important collections in recent years, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can remember um, the Henry Cotton medal from a night, I think it was a 1937 or 1938 open. Mm -hmm. That was uh, that was a bite. That was a record at the time for a, a round medal, not the, the sort mm -hmm. of the, you know, that shape, a heraldic um, shaped medal from the 1890s. That uh, that that got a really good price of about sort of uh, thirty or forty thousand pounds, and then obviously the one that the painting that Dick bought before he yes. died, the big calendar painting, mm -hmm. that was well, that was a, a great piece, and I know what he paid for it. <laughs> he realized uh, a lot of money for it. Was yes. that through Bonhams? That that sale was through Bonhams. That was Bonhams, yes. Oh, yes. And was the putter also sold through Bonhams, or did he yes. get that from the club? No, well, no, because we the, the, the we had the putter and the painting from, uh -huh. from the club. Now, so, Blackheath sold those items because they needed repairs, isn't that right? No, I think they had the they had the opportunity to buy the land that the golf oh, club was wow. on. Okay, so they could buy it from the leaseholder, mm -hmm. and I think that's what that's the reason that, that motivated them. Mm -hmm. I think they've put a replica in the clubhouse, but it it really pained me to see that painting in Dick's living room. Yeah. <laughs> and now it well, shouldn't it shouldn't pain me but i just thought boy that really belongs in the clubhouse yes yes i know yes it's, yes but uh anyway it's it, it's in the yeah dick, dick bought it and that was it so there you go yeah yeah, yeah. well somebody would have bought it mm -hmm. uh, he let us all hold that putter and i wanted to ask you about that too i mean handling these sort of rarities for me is almost transformational in, you must have seen incredible items through your day. What does yes. it mean to you to hold these precious antiques? Does it mean anything to you? Of course it does. Um, you, you you think back of the of the of the time. You think back about the the player. If there's an association. You think back about the the blacksmith who who mm -hmm. crafted this this beautiful uh, club. You think of the you know wh wh where is it going to be in a hundred years time from now. Um, hopefully it's going to be looked after. Hopefully, you know, it'll just continue. Um, yes, all, all sorts of uh, golf pieces, whether it's a ball or a piece of artwork or a vase or a golf club, 
when it's old and it's valuable, you really do appreciate it. Mm -hmm. At least for me, I feel like I can psychically channel what that might have been like to be one of the players, you know, and let's say in the late 18th century or something, mm -hmm. just to hold those really old golf clubs is very different than just looking at them. Yes. Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, with a club, you look at, you can see the grip, you can see uh, the wear and tear on it. Um, and the weight, the weight of it. And the too. weight and the size yeah. of the head. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, are, are you a collector, Kevin? Well, I've collected golf balls. Mm -hmm. um, Was that past tense? Yes, because I sold my collection, my, the main run of the collection. I sold it to Bonhams about uh, 15 years ago. Mm. Okay. And I had things like, um, you know, a couple of nice featheries, and I had a Penful Man and a Dunlop Man and a Silver mm -hmm. King Man, all the sort of the, the merchandising display points, of uh, which I always really find very interesting. Um, but then... It didn't all sell. So the 10% the that didn't sell, that then formed the nucleus of a, of a, of a second collection. Mm -hmm. And I've been just quietly just adding a golf ball here and a golf ball there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but it's like a lot of collectors say the, ch the children aren't interested in them. Yes. Um, so really, you've got, to, you've got to sort of draw a, 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 a temperate line and say... Yeah. Don't get too carried away here because yeah. it's just going to cause confusion when you when you move on to the 19th hole. Yes. <laughs> I've been in some people's garages and you realize there can be a really serious sickness in collecting golf yeah. clubs. Yes. When yes. you see 8,000 golf clubs in somebody's garage. <laughs> and they probably haven't cataloged them and they don't know what uh, they're leaving. And Oh, that's that. Uh, that's not a very nice thing to do, really. Yeah, it is very difficult on the widows, but we all know this. Anyway, what yeah. about golf ball boxes? I know that's very collectible. I've never understood the allure of golf balls, collecting golf balls. I'm not saying I couldn't understand it. I just so far haven't yeah. gravitated that way. I know boxes and advertising, like you say, are very collectible, yeah. too. Well, I would say uh, if, if you'd asked me, you know, what do people collect or why do they collect in golf balls? I would say the, um, you know, you start off with a feather era mm -hmm. and then you come on to the sort of the, the rubber core era from the 1900s onwards. And then you look at the cover patterns. Yes. And then you look at the, uh, the, the one we just talked about earlier, or you talk about a rifled pattern or you, you talk about the stars and stripes. So, so or the bramble, the one that looks like the pimple mm -hmm. or the, the round dimple that we all know today. So collectors can look at these golf ball patterns and maybe find different 20 types to sort of uh, interest themselves. Then you've got the wrap golf balls. Now the wrap golf balls started in the, the late 1890s. Well, by the 1920s, these are just beautiful art deco, brilliantly colored, harlequin, staggeringly beautiful looking golf ball wrappers. Mm -hmm. So golf collectors can find those as well and then that leads on to your golf boxes imagine finding a golf box even if it's just empty but it's got some mm -hmm. lovely artwork on the front and lovely colors imagine opening that box and suddenly there were 10 wrapped yes. golf balls. yeah where are the other two or sometimes you just find maybe 11 and there's one missing <laughs> but even an even an empty golf ball box is fantastically interesting because It'll tell you what maybe the ball inside was like. It'll tell you what the age of the golf box was. And they're just lovely things to have as well. You sound like we're discovering King Tut's tomb. I just love it. <laughs> There's a photo on your website of Will Easton's collection in Idaho. All of, yes. all of the balls are wrapped. That yeah. seems like a very special collection. Can you tell us what his story is? Well, I never met Bill. I'm uh, sorry, well, William. Um, Will, um, but uh, we've emailed each other several times. I think he's around about my age. And that's what he collects. He collects uh, wrapped golf balls. And when you see a photograph like that, to me, it's, it's lovely. They're, yeah, I was very they're, they're, unexpected. They're, they're clean, they're bright, um, they're old. I mean, those golf balls are all nearly over 100 years old, and there they are in perfect condition. I mean, as a golfer, you remember probably going onto the first tee with that wrapped golf ball, mm -hmm. the ball that was going to actually unleash, you know, your record score, <laughs> record score. And you unwrapped it and you showed off and it was a crinkle here and a crinkle there. 
those days are lost, I think. I think the golf manufacturers once in a while should actually just come up with a limited edition wrap golf ball. Just Good idea. Fun, but... So just for the listener's sake, uh, this is a photograph of a golf ball rack like you would see in many offices in the world, but all of the balls are still wrapped. So if you yes. don't mind, I'll repost that picture on the show notes. Yes, yes. Uh, it was it was really intriguing to see it. Yes, good, good. Have you ever tried hickory golf, Kevin? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. I had a I, I had a um, a half set about ten years ago. Um, I stopped playing because I, I got a bad back and that was just putting too much pressure pressure on me. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And the slower you swing, the the easier it is. And uh, yeah, I, I love it. I wouldn't I wouldn't give up my uh, my my steel shafts. On a Saturday, though, I still I still enjoy playing with my friends and a on a mm, sure yeah. Now again, I've admitted I'm a novice in this area for golf ball collecting. Obviously, condition is key. Can you talk about some of the other factors that make a ball desirable? Yes, well, rarity is is obviously a, an important point. When I was doing some research recently, I suddenly realized that during the Second World War periods, you know, as I say, 1940 and 1946 especially in the United States, so mm -hmm. many golf balls were reprocessed. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the adverts, you'll see that, uh, that all the manufacturers, Worthington, uh, Titleist, um, Wright and Ditson, they're all saying, we cannot supply you with golf balls, but you send us in a golf ball that is in reasonable condition. We will reprocess that and send you a, an equivalent golf ball back. And that made me think there must have been thousands and thousands, if not millions of golf balls that actually were plucked out of the garage, out of, the, out of a, a collection, never mind find on a golf course, and then changed forever. So those golf balls from the 1920s and 30s were mm -hmm. probably then given a new life and they don't exist, exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And that then that creates great, uh, great rarity. Are you saying uh, that the balls were repurposed for the war effort or they no, were no, no, they, to use as a ball? They were reprocessed for golfers who yes. were who were allowed to who were still playing golf. Yeah. Um, because basically the but by 1941, uh, certainly in the United Kingdom, there was no there was no such thing as a golf ball. Mm -hmm. They were all making rubber tires for the for sure. the war effort. Yes, yes, yes. And that was the same in the in the in the, in America. So this was for purely for recreational purposes. We can't make new. We can't make new golf balls. We're not allowed to, but we can do this to keep the game going. Right. That was interesting. I, when I read your folios, the recovering of the balls was an interesting thing. You have pictures yes. of the advertisements and things like that. Yes. Yes. I yes. wasn't aware of that. No. Well, I think that's quite a. It's a recent um, revelation to me, actually, that mm. that's why, relatively speaking, there are so few golf balls on uh, available for collectors. Mm. And going back to the auction days, over 20 years, it, you do see collections um, coming back onto the market. You see the same golf ball that was sold, that very, very same golf ball was sold at auction in 1985. And here it is at, at auction in 2022. Yeah. Well, let's jump from that to the Harry Wood collection. I don't know a lot about the collection. I think Dick had some of the Harry Wood golf balls. Yes. Can you tell us just a little background on that collection? Do you know much about that? Well, he's basically attributed to being the very the first serious collector of golf memorabilia. Mm -hmm. He was based in uh, Manchester at the old Manchester Golf Club, which is about um, 30, 35 miles from where I live in Chester. And he had uh, various scouts and sources all around Scotland trying to find him the old relics, things that were unusual, clubs and balls. And he then amassed this and put them on display in the old Manchester Golf Club, where they stayed until about the 1980s when they were bought up by two, mm -hmm. um, two collectors. And so the they, collection was divided. I think yeah. uh, Wood was what 1910s, 1920s himself. Uh, yeah, well, even earlier. Yeah, you're, uh -huh. you're probably right. Sorry, that's right. Yes, yeah. yes, it was. Yeah, I and see. Also, so, go ahead. And he affixed onto the um, the balls um, a, a rather unique little sticker. Yes, which sometimes he wrote on it in ink to say what the uh, what the club was or what the ball was. Mm -hmm. And these still add um, a, a lot of cachet just because of the provenance. Right. 
Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've played with a number of replica balls, uh, the bramble, the line cut, hand hammered, smooth, uh, mostly gutty and feathery balls. The bramble to me, from my experience, rolled faster on greens because it has less surface contact. Have you played with a bramble or do you, was that no. part of the thinking of that shape, do you think? It's a very, very good question. And I think you've answered it. I think you've answered mm -hmm. it. It, it. It rolled well on the green. Um, it didn't uh, hold um, much debris, yes. um, whereas the, the recess dimple ball did. And aerodynamically, I think it was actually a very, very good ball. Mm -hmm. Didn't they bring it back with the Cayman balls when they were trying to use them on the sort of the short and golf courses in the Cayman oh, Islands? I don't know. And uh, I think you'll find that they, you know they were of a bramble pattern, so obviously it did still work. Mm, good. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about colors of golf balls. What what can you tell uh, listeners about that? Well, obviously the most common color is is white. Golf balls um, that were being made in Scotland in the 1890s, they started to paint them, and red mm -hmm. became a popular color. We used to think all the time that it was because of the uh, frosty conditions, so that the red would stand out. Mm -hmm. But more people fine it was because of the the daisies mm, on the yes. fairways mm -hmm. and if you hit a white ball into there you wouldn't find it so the red again was a sort of a significant uh, color and easy to find blue has been used i've seen a silver town golf ball from the 1890s mm. in a pale blue no, i don't know why and i've also seen some golf balls from the 1920s 1930s they've been painted in yellow red blue and silver. Hmm. And uh, um, does, does the color of a gutta ball make a difference to its value? Maybe not. It, 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 it does actually, because it, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it it's, it's a little bit more exceptional um, and a little bit rarer. If it's and lighter? If you, well, if you've got a nice collection of golf balls and they're all white, that's fine. But if you've got something that's interspersed with some colors to break up, right? It, that, that always helps. Obviously, if the ball is still in its wrapper, that heightens the value of it, I would imagine. Uh, as a rule of thumb, I say it's, it doubles it. Oh, it doubles it. Yeah. Interesting. It might even, might even treble it. I've seen all the, also people have balls where the wrapper has been opened that mm -hmm. can't increase the value much, can it? Well, then you get easy. It, do, it does. It, it does. A little. Um, yeah. It, yeah, probably adds another 50% mm. uh, as a rule of thumb. Um, because again, it's if it's ephemera and it it's it's easy, easily destroyed. Yes, I've been amazed as a golf club collector that often golf balls will sell for multiples of what golf clubs sell for. Mm -hmm. um, uh, has the market cooled from its high point, or what? What what could we say about that over the last twenty or thirty years? That's a good. That's a good question. The peak of the golf ball market, I would say, was the early 1990s mm -hmm. and then we've had various sort of economic recessions and things like that and mm -hmm. that obviously affects things because it's quite a sort of small niche market and this is this would be what I should have said earlier earlier on when we first started to talk I'm talking about traditional golf balls you know there are people out there if you look on the internet who collect logo golf balls there are people who collect signature golf balls if you go onto uh, Facebook and you'll see that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds who call that's part of their golf ball collecting, collecting logos. Yes. Um, I can understand signature golf balls whereby there are people who want to collect a golf ball with Tiger Woods' name on it or mm -hmm. Seve Ballesteros or old Tom Morris. I can understand that. But they, they're all part and parcel of the of the golf ball fraternity, and it's and as a whole, it's very important. And are you a believer that Tom Morris actually signed any golf balls? Did he do that? I, I think I've seen a picture of one at the museum in St Andrews, but it doesn't appear to be an actual handwritten signature. No, if there is a Tom Morris ball in in the clubhouse there, and I don't think it's got Tom Morris's signature on it. Yeah. No, Alan Robertson, his. Yes. Uh, he signed some. I know that. Yeah. Not, 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 I don't think Tom Morris did. Well, let's jump to Alan for a minute. Alan's one of my favorite people in history. Yeah. He's a third generation golf ball maker. 
Yeah. Uh, I have a few questions about him. Are any examples of either his father or his father's father's balls in existence that you know of? His, fa his father's balls, there, there, there are some examples. And he was David Robertson? But not, 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 not any older than that. Uh, and Alan would put a number on his balls. I imagine that's the grams of weight of the ball. Is that what that is? Well, uh, we call it the, the DWT, which mm -hmm. basically was either the weight or the size. Okay. And um, it sort of, over the years, that sort of slightly changed because it's more of a sort of a weight thing rather than a size thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, he would put a 29 on it to, to, to indicate um you know that, that that's what what the ball weighed now with all of your travels working with bonhams were you able to see some pretty special collections over the years yes um i went to valderrama and uh, saw mr patino's collection mm -hmm. and that was wonderful um, i went to dick Estes' house in uh, palm springs and saw part of his collection because the, the main collection was obviously in uh, Oregon, yes, Portland. which I didn't see. Mm. Portland, yeah. Privately, yes, I've seen quite a few sort of private collections, and um, um, some came into bonds for cataloging, and some didn't. Um, but I think um, the last collection I saw in the states was a, was by a um, chap called Roberto, and he was um, of sort of the of the old school, and. Yes. Uh, uh, we did quite a good job on it, but not as good as he'd, he'd hoped, but that's the way it was. Uh, obviously, the photos and, you know, it's nice that the hammer prices are available. I've, I've looked mm. at all of those clubs and it's a great way for people like me to learn. It is a great way. I think uh, an auction catalogue is worth an awful lot more when it's got the prices realized in it. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's, that's what that club was worth on that day. And that's yes. important. Yes. Now I'd love to ask you about the Cochrane's terrestrial golf ball. That's that's a ball that I've always been enamored with. Could you mm -hmm. tell us? Is there a story behind that? I think all of them were technically bramble balls. And is the terrestrial the same as the map of the world ball? Well, you've answered that question. Yes, it is. It's sometimes mm -hmm. called the globe ball, sometimes called the terrestrial ball, and sometimes called map of the world ball. And um, um, Cochrane, I think, called it the terrestrial ball, whereas the golf magazines called it the map of the world ball. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all bramble, and they've all got the uh, the continents um, in relief. There's also a registered design number that you see on the ball, which was obviously copywriting the the, the design. Mm -hmm. um, why they were made? Again, I think it was just basically to show that they they could do something a little bit unusual. Right, and um, as to surviving numbers, uh, in my time, I've probably auctioned six different ones, one of which was very, very badly distressed, mm -hmm. um, and one was absolutely mint. And there's probably maybe, maybe less than 20 known mm -hmm. to exist today. So I wonder if there was only one mold ever for that ball. I was thinking, I would say yes. Uh -huh. I would say yes. And I, I don't think... I don't think he made. I don't think he would have made more than maybe a thousand at the mm -hmm. time. And um, why? Again, we'll, we'll, we'll never yeah, know. It is fun. God, it, yeah. it it just speaks to me when I saw that for the first time. I don't know mm -hmm. a few years ago. Yes, yes, it just looks like a fun thing to have. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> it is absolutely. Uh, I would say also you mentioned some of these already, but for me, the Stars and Stripes ball is really appealing, and the Davidson oh. rifle ball. I yes. don't. I can't imagine what that ball plays like, but I nobody would hit one of these anymore, would they? What a real one! Yeah, a real one. No, no, they're way too valuable. Far, far, far too valuable. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, if I remember correctly, the um, the story about the stars and stripes ball was that one came into an American auction house, and then one of the collectors, really, really aggressive buyer. Asked the auctioneer, you know, what, what, where did it come from? And I, let's say he said, uh, oh, it came in from Maine. Mm -hmm. And the collector then went up to Maine and <clears throat> narrowed it down to an area, but he started putting in adverts into the local stores and shops, you know, ball like this wanted. And eventually he got a, a phone call and went back up 
and family had these golf balls. They thought they were baseballs, oh. baseball, baseball balls. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, mm. they, um, he acquired another 10 of them from the, from the family and from his hard work and diligence. Nice. Yeah. Now, I'm also a fan of Peter Paxton, and I know he made of golf balls. I've only ever seen one online. Do you see them at all? Do nope. they come up? No, not very often. No. Yeah. I've, uh, I reached out to somebody online that had one that he found in the dirt somewhere, and yeah. uh, he wouldn't part with it. But I, he, I, he was quite a prolific golf ball uh, producer, you mm-hmm. know, not sort of, uh, you know, factory, uh, but. Uh, and he made four or five different types of balls, you know, again, which will be in the, in, in the book. I can't remember them offhand now, but. I, I play with a lot of Peter Paxton clubs, and uh, that's why I ask. Okay. In some of your work, I've read about efforts to outdo the Haskell ball when that came out. And there were many, many competitors, liquid-filled balls, air-filled balls, floating centers. That era yeah. with patents and competition obviously was rife with competition how could you explain how that all shaped out was it that the the goliaths won the day because i know there were patent wars and battles from overseas everybody wanted to corner the market didn't they well the haskell ball was 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 really so unique Mm -hmm. um a court case um in in the british isles which was a patent case um showed that although um, there had been rubber cores wound with with windings, they were never they were, they were never wound under tension. Mm-hmm. And this was completely a sort of a, a completely n- novel new way of making a golf ball. And although they had something like maybe 15 years of patent protection and they sold licenses to Spalding and Worthington and St. Mungo, that they can make the, these balls on, under license. Nobody else got a, got a look in. The only way they could do it is do it illegally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were pretty ruthless in making sure that they didn't go into the market very often. Right. So basically Haskell and then these six licensees, they, they had a monopoly on, on golf ball development until probably the 1920s. I was curious, this air-filled ball, it sounds like they would have a, a rubberized center, which they would later insert a needle into, basically, and fill it with air. Well, it was called the pneumatic. Mm-hmm. And uh, Goodyear uh, were the ones who um, uh, came up with this idea. And uh, it was on the market for um, probably uh, six to eight years. Mm-hmm. But it did. It had come. It was. It had compressed air in the center of the ball, but it did have a tendency to have leakage, mm-hmm. and you could end up with a rather sort of saggy-looking golf ball. Sure, which wasn't particularly fun to play with. I live out here in Port Townsend, Washington, which is two hours west of Seattle, and at our local driving range, I got a liquid-filled, liquid center golf ball one day. And oh my God, it was so much fun. And I went out and I went online and bought a dozen uh, antique liquid center balls. I haven't used them yet, but they're still wrapped. Right. Yeah. They're not valuable, but I love that idea. Yes, absolutely. Well, then obviously then um, the 1920s, 1930s, then that that became a really important time for what the manufacturers were like putting uh, honey into the center of a golf oh. ball, you know, for the Hagen golf balls. Really? Uh, you know, uh, and um, <clears throat> mercury, no, mercury was earlier than that. Yeah, honey was the big thing in the 1930s. And Walter Hagen put his name on that? He did. That's all coming out in Folio 3, which is the next phase is uh, 1920s, 1945. Uh-huh. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's an awful lot of Hagen golf balls with, with honey centers. It sounds on brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, do you know, is the golf ball that Alan broke 80 with at the old course, does, is that ball someplace? Do we know? It may not have been saved. I don't think it's, it's certainly not the RNA. Because I've gone through their collection several mm-hmm. times, and I haven't noticed that. No, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, for a long time, I don't know when balls were standardized, but obviously, whether a ball was actually round or how much it weighed 
was mm. somewhat arbitrary for many, 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 probably centuries. Yes. Do you know, were players mm. with, with Allen and others notating a numeral on their balls? I would mm. assume certain better players might have gravitated to try to find consistency in a ball. Do we know anything about that? No, uh, it, only, only as, as you've said, um, a, a, a player, a golfer, would have uh, had a preference Mm-hmm. He would have had a preference uh, ball maker, mm-hmm. and he would have a preference weight and size, and it, <clears throat> the golf ball only be only only underwent some kind of standardisation in 1920. Mm-hmm. Until 1920, you could play with a golf ball of any size, any weight, any colour, whatever you wanted to do. But uh, the USGA and the RNA got together in 1920 and started to come together to try and put some kind of limit on the the distance a golf ball mm-hmm. could go and it's ironic that we here we are 103 years later and they're still talking about it yeah was the wasn't the british and the american ball different in size for a long time yes they the the usga and the and the british or the rna they worked together for about 10 years and 1920 um it was uh 1.62 then it went down to 1.55, then it went up to 168. So by 1930, the Americans had agreed on a ball, which I think is the present um, 168 mm-hmm. size, but the British said that was too big. Mm-hmm. And the British waited until 1970 before they concurred wow. and, and joined the Americans. Now I've seen these metal flat credit card like devices with a hole in the middle where you could find if your ball was round. Is there a name for that thing? A gauge. A gauge. That's all. That's what they call yeah. it. Okay. And uh, the, the people who made the, um, the map of the world, Cochrane's, mm-hmm. they, they brought out a brass gauge, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which uh, were made available to golfers. And obviously on one side, there was an advertisement. But on the other side, it said exactly what the regulation standard the size mm-hmm. of the ball was. And brass is soft. Is there a purpose for it being brass? Do you know? No, just just quality. Uh huh. Oh, I see. Yeah. Other 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 manufacturers brought it out and used a cardboard one, but that uh, obviously didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there any women golf ball makers that you know of? Yeah, mostly most golf balls were made by women in the factories, but mm-hmm. not fe- not feather. You know, not that era. Mm-hmm. But by the nineteen tens, mostly mostly. The, the factory workers were, were uh, female. I wonder, though, if anybody marketed a ball under their own name. Yes. Wood, Wood Mill, W-O-O-D Milne, mm-hmm. that was a British golf ball company, and they brought out um, a, a, a lady ball in the 1920s, specifically for, uh, for women golfers. Mm-hmm. Another ball that I was really impressed with in one of your folios is this ball called the Triple A London or Anderson, Anderson, Anderson. And your book says there's only one known to exist. Yes. That's incredible. Well, this is a, this is a sort of, um, whereas earlier on I, t- I said about the fact that golf balls were made rare because of the war years. Mm-hmm. Another phenomenon that's happened in the last 30 years is the arrival of what we call lake balls. And we're talking about, especially in the United Kingdom, there are two or three people who have devoted their lives to going around old golf horses, going into old water hazards and extracting old golf balls. Mm -hmm. And um, invariably, these... Anderson ones, these AAA ones, have been lake balls and um, have been repainted mm-hmm. yes. and have then been put onto the market. And uh, we wouldn't know, known, we wouldn't know of their existence if it hadn't been the fact that they've been found in lakes. Yes, interesting. Yeah. Uh, are there other wild stories of discoveries of rare balls that you could share with our listeners? Yes. Um, one I liked was. Um, the green keeper uh, of the new Loughness golf course up near Gullen. Mm-hmm. And um, there was land to the right of the existing golf course. And they were using the sand, you know, to take uh, for, for the repairs around the golf course. And they started to find golf balls in this sand dune. 
And looking at the map of the old course, this was mm -hmm. like a this is a, a an area where golf balls would have landed. Mm -hmm. And um, they found several uh, old gutter golf balls, some of which have been shown in the in the in the book. And um, fantastic condition considering their, their age. Mm -hmm. The sand has preserved them and uh, they've still even got the lettering on them. Willie, mm -hmm. Willie Park or uh, George Duncan or whatever, just mm -hmm. there, they, there they are. And uh, some of them came to auction and uh, the greenkeeper did very well out of them. Mm -hmm. That's pretty neat. Yeah. I, I've heard stories, you know, golf club collectors that'll buy an old bag of clubs. The smart collectors always empty that bag and they turn it upside down because you just yes. never know what's inside. Exactly. Yes, exactly. There'll be a, there might be a, a golf ball or some teas. Yeah. You just, you just never know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Yeah. Also until I saw your books, I never knew about the flat studs pattern and that really looks appealing to me. I've never seen one in person, but again, just a marketing gimmick, I imagine. Well, it's, it, it's a continuation of the bramble. Mm-hmm. So it's about it's uh, they're 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 protruding on top of the surface, but they've been flattened down and made a sort of a slightly larger circumference or diameter. I mean, yes, um, Wilson made one. The uh, I think it was nineteen nineteen. Uh, mm -hmm. They brought one out, and uh, yeah, it looks a lovely. It's a lovely looking golf ball. Yeah, I think so. What what can yeah. you say about golf ball molds? I mean, they're also very expensive. The original ones are are there many many of them around? For instance, no. if somebody wanted to find one of these flat stud molds, mm. is that a very very hard thing to do? Yes, yeah, very hard. Yes, mm -hmm. the, the the existing big brass molds that uh, you we might you might find at auction or see in a museum, they're invariably of the bramble pattern. Mm -hmm. Smaller ones would be. Uh, it'd be found from the sort of 1930s, but again, they'll usually be mesh or yes. the round dimples. Right. But uh, you know, they are they are about, but um, those those three patterns really. Now, I'd like to stray off of the uh, topic just for a minute. I found a copy of your book, The Story of Golf, printed in Russian on the Bonham site. Is there a big market in Russia? Well, the, the, <clears throat> the publishers came came to me and said. That they wanted to do this so they they did the story of the golf ball book and the uh, golf memorabilia book that i wrote with david niche and uh they, I, from what i've been told they printed several thousand mm, wow I, I i got i got 12 complimentary copies of each book mm -hmm. and it's, it's fantastic really <laughs> for somebody that wanted to get into this area of collecting what's your advice for a novice do a little bit of research see what uh, what sort of tickles your fancy for instance, if I was starting it again, I would collect patent golf balls. Mm -hmm. Any golf ball that's got a patent number on it, because that means then there's something interesting about it. Mm -hmm. and maybe it didn't last as long as something else. But I'm too old for that now, so <laughs> that, that's, that's come and gone, unfortunately. But that's what I would say to a collector who's got you know, a little bit of money. You know, there, There's a nice area to concentrate on. Um, like all collectibles, buy what you can um, in the best possible condition mm -hmm. and um, don't buy it for a, uh, an investment, but don't, don't, uh, don't be foolish yes. and, and, and enjoy. Mm -hmm. Good, good advice. How can people contact you or find your books? Oh, well, that'd be very nice. Um, I've got a very little website called uh, www.golfballbook.co.uk. I, have, I will link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Or I've got a personal uh, email, which I'm quite happy to put out, which is kevin.prgolf.com. And uh, I will reply to every email I get. Wonderful. Can I, tell you, can I tell you an interesting story about uh, Jack Nicholas? Yes, please. Yes, I know you were at the 86 Masters. Yes, please. Yeah, do, you, do, you, do you know the, story, the, the, the good story? Well, I know you did a practice round with Jack. Yeah, so you know, the, you know the story, right? Yeah, okay. but please tell us, please. Oh, well, uh, my father was alive and he uh, realized that um, Garth, my brother, um, was going to be out there. And he, he wrote a letter to Jack Nicholas. Mm. And uh, Jack Nicholas wrote back and said, well, I, I would love to meet your son. And um, if you'd like to join me for a practice day on the, on the Tuesday, I'm playing with two other young American amateurs. Mm -hmm. You make up a four ball. So we got out there and uh, 
Garth was on the putting green and I was in my white overalls and my green cap. <laughs> and uh, the, it was hot and there were hundreds and hundreds of people around the putting green. And Nicholas came up to Garth and introduced himself. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I'll see you on the first tee. And he walked off and there's a big throng going towards the tee. And uh, they got on the first tee and Jack said, let's throw the balls up and see who's playing with each other. And oh. <laughs> Garth, Garth, Garth is playing with one of the American amateurs and against the other, against Jack and the other guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, uh, and he said, we'll, we'll play for five dollars. And uh, that was it. So off they went. And... Um, I can remember, well, he was 46, Jack Nicholas, and I can remember they were playing the uh, the 13th mm-hmm. at Amen Corner, and the three amateurs were 50 to 100 yards past his drive. Mm-hmm. We were we were looking back at Jack Nicholas um, playing his, you know, um, brassy up to the, uh, <laughs> the green, and yeah. uh, we stopped one time. Um, it was uh, there was uh, thunder and lightning, and we were sheltering. And I thought, oh, don't, don't end, don't, don't, don't go in, you know, please, you know, just keep going. And Jack Nicholas turned to one of them and said, I'm staying out here. I, mm. I need the practice. So we thought that's fantastic. And we stopped another, we stopped again for, for lightning and we, but he continued on. So this went on and on and it was great. And uh, we got to the uh, 18th and uh, Garth, uh, my brother, and his partner, I think they'd beaten Jack uh, two and one. Mm-hmm. And they were shaking their hands and that was it. And Garth saw the two American amateurs, you know, settle up the money. And Garth, and Garth said to me, he said, uh, Jack hasn't paid his, <laughs> his, his bet. <clears throat> I said, Garth, you've, you've just played with the greatest golfer ever. Who cares? And he probably just said that just to sort of as a, as a fun little thing. <laughs> and uh, Garth said, well, okay, fair enough. Um, Anyway, after uh, uh, the event was over and Jack Nicholas was the Masters champion, yes. and Garth went back to Ireland, he received a, a, a letter thanking Garth for the game of golf and please find enclosed uh, a check for $5. Yeah. From a check. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the 1986 uh, champ- uh, Masters champion, That's which priceless. has obviously never been cashed and yeah. was framed and just shows you how classy the guy was. That's great. I love the way you describe him on his approach shot to 13 with a brassy in 1986. Well, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. <laughs> that speaks exactly. to our listeners. That's good. That's good. Oh, no, it, it, it was great. And uh, Garth went out. Um, there was a thing called a concession cup, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not sure if it still goes or not. But anyway, it was, am- it was an amateur thing. And Jack Nicholas and Tony Jacker were involved in it. And uh, it was in Florida, and Garth was out there as a captain of the British team, and he he he'd taken with him a copy of that. Oh yeah, yeah, which is yeah. book that Garth was brought up on. And he was sitting beside Jack Nicholas, and he said to Jack Nicholas, uh, "Mr. Nick, could you just sign this, please?" And so he's written to Kevin, "All the best for a great job caddying Jack Nicholas." <laughs> You see that? That's, yeah, that's great. Uh, that, was, that was nice. So br- brotherly love as well. Yeah. Now, uh, just quickly, I, I was there. I was there for the 2019 Masters. I got through the lottery, so I was there the year Tiger won, which was pretty yeah. exciting. But yes, yes. As a, as somebody who caddied there, mm. it was quite a walk, wasn't it? It was, and it was a, it was it was a wet Masters. Mm. Uh, I slipped one uh, one time uh, coming down the. Uh, the 10th mm-hmm. and i felt on my backside yes that white overall was just splattered <laughs> and i had to take it into the had to take it into the the caddy shack when i got back and the uh the, the caddy master wasn't at all impressed <laughs> that's a steep hole <laughs> yeah. uh did you get to caddy for four rounds or just two just the two yeah just the two yeah well it's pretty special well he went out the next year and he and he and he, and he, he when he did the two as well but in the in the in that the two rides we played with Arnold Palmer, mm. which was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, and uh, Arnold wasn't particularly sociable. He was still <laughs> thinking he was he was going to win this thing, yeah. and he wasn't going to spend much time with a an amateur. But he did say one time Garth had a shot, and and Arnold Palmer said, "Good shot, son." Mm-hmm. Was, yeah, well, that was high praise. That was high praise. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that was good. Yeah. Well, that's great. What a what a wonderful memory. Yeah, it was. It was. It was great. It was. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, great talking to you. Thank you for well, reaching so. out to me. Hope so. Hope you're not just being nice. No, no, not at all. I appreciate this. Okay. Lovely to talk to you. Okay. Have a good evening. Andy, Thanks. Andy, keep well. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.